Hello and welcome to Dream Nation. I'm your host, Yulia, and today instead of plugging somebody else's products, I'm going to plug my own. I don't know if you're aware, but Dream Nation also has a full-service creative agency. You can check it out at dreamnation.io slash creativeagency. And um, we're full-service. We do everything from digital to print to experiential, so give us a shout. Um, I have over 10 years of NYC ad agency experience under my belt, and so do many people that I work with. It's a really, 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 really awesome creative shop if you want to do some really great creative work all over the world. And um, a quick way to support the show is to also get something from the merch shop. If you want a Dream Nation hoodie, if you want a Dream Nation mug, or if you want a Dream Nation hat or shirt or anything else, you can check it out. I have new merch dropping a few times a year so uh, check it out at dreamnation.io in the shop and if you want to advertise give me a shout at yulia at dreamnation.io speak soon have a great day enjoy the podcast hello how are you i'm well how are you i'm good i'm gonna turn off my video so a you don't see my messy hair and b the sound sounds better How's your day? Um, good. I need a new bed. My back is killing me. And so I've been Googling cheap beds on the online. Oh my God. You know what? I have the same problem. Yeah. I actually wake up with back pain as well. And I think it's because um, it's the mattress. Mm-hmm. For me, I bought some fancy bed and it had a fluffy top. And it was awesome for the first year. And then all of a sudden, it was like massive dents in the bed. <laughs> so wherever you, <laughs> wherever you lied, you'd always like roll into one of the dents of where like clearly where I'd slept. But then it's like, a, it's like a river. Like there's just waves of uncomfortable. Oh, my God, it's the worst. By the way, I try to find you. You're, you're like off social media completely, right? You're just like. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've just basically tried to hide myself <laughs> until I figure some things out. That's what's hard is like, yeah, it's just social media. Everyone who follows me follows me for a different reason. And then it becomes kind of like, oh, damn, I'm not prepared for all of this. Because <laughs> with the pastor part of it, they all want kind of like counseling. <laughs> so it's like, I'm here to tell you cool things about social justice, but I can't do counseling for the whole world. Well, you know what? Well, this is what I started doing with my podcast, right? I was like, how can I get people to care about social justice? Like nobody cares. Like if I like this is the truth, right? I do a post about social justice and homelessness and all the stuff that I really care about. But people like their Kardashians and people like their pearls and people like their Palo Alto homes. Mm. So it's like, how do I integrate this information where people tune in and they don't turn their ear, right? That's the challenge. I would love to see you start preaching and like doing your own church because I think you have a huge audience that would tune in and... But, like, I would totally go to a church if you had one. So you got one disciple right here. I started doing it. Go ahead. Go ahead. When I uh, I was – when we were – when I first – when the Twitter thing first blew up, someone had reached out from San Francisco who does the projection protest where they go around to big buildings and they project an image of something about the CEO or something that works, somebody that works there, like a get out of, get out of ice type thing on the immigration building. And so he was like, Gregory, what do you want to put up on the Twitter building? Your tweet went viral. Let's put something up on the Twitter building. <laughs> and so I tweeted it out. Like, what should I put up? And the first people to respond were the satanic temple of San Francisco. <laughs> Some brilliant verse about like uh, worshiping the golden calf, which is, you know, worshiping money and finance. And that's exactly what we projected on the building. It was perfect. (laughs) Oh, my God. You know, that's really disruption when you come to think about disruption is having an alternate point of view. Did you see the article in um, in Detroit, Michigan, like the Satanist moved into town and everybody loves it? (laughs) I didn't see that. Okay, so go on YouTube and there's like a whole entire Vice documentary about how real estate is so cheap in Detroit and then the Satanists all got together and they created a church. But it's not what like you think it is. It's really Uh about like, it's really, it's kind of like, it's just about like embracing different views and like it's really I don't even know about the Satanist church but it's really it's not about Satanism really it's just about like being different and like and looking at things (laughs) who does some organizing with them and it's funny because it's like wherever there's a conservative 
he lives in Dallas. Wherever mm -hmm. there's like a conservative Christian that's like, we're going to put up the Ten Commandments. He's like, okay, but we're also going to put up a statue of this like horned beast Satan <laughs> thing because it's our religion. There you go. And it's just like <laughs> these crazy people are now ha who all want like the uh, Ten Commandments in the courthouse or whatever are now having to put up with like giant statues of Satan next to it, which is hilarious. But like. That is the brilliant, that is brilliant right? It's, <laughs> yeah. the, it's, it's the beauty of America and the beauty of free speech and the beauty of like so people good. wanting to do things. And like, I think the whole point is just to get people to look at different sides. Like there needs to be oh, a yin yeah. and a yang. I don't know, but I guess I'll just um, go into the podcast. <laughs> but um, so Gregory Stevens, thank you so much for being on the show today. Um, I've been reading about your work and I've been following along and you're definitely not on social media and <laughs> <laughs> I tracked you down and now we're here and uh, I have so many things to talk to you about. I'm going to go straight into my first question, which is what was your dream as a kid? <laughs> when I was a kid, I was very good at... Um mirroring my parents which I guess is what we're all good at when we're kids but I was really good at it so anything my mom thought or believed I could regurgitate almost verbatim and it was kind of like maybe like a look at me mom give me attention I can do that and so with politics I would go to school and I would just unload on everyone with my mom's like disgruntled <laughs> politics um, and so then when I my mother wasn't a religious person but when I started going to church when I was in like um the eighth grade, I could do the same thing. I would learn and soak up all of what they said and I would kind of regurgitate it. And I didn't really have any of my own ideas. I was more so just kind of learning and regurgitating. Well, what they told me was that the whole world was bad, broken, disgusting, that God hated it because it was full of sin and that I needed to participate in sharing the gospel and saving the world. So as a little kid, my dream was literally I thought I was going to save the world. And I still kind of think that, but I think it in a totally different way than what I thought when I was little. Um, what is that new way? So rather than saving it with some, I mean, the, the gospel is a word I still like to use, but it's it, it meant something very different when I was a child. It meant that other people thought about God. They were intellectually wrong about the way to think about God and that they needed to think like us. Um, and so that's the old way, and I don't really like that way at all. But the new way is more so to participate in the work that people have already been doing. Um, whenever there's a king, whenever there's a queen or an emperor or a CEO or some sort of hierarchy of structure, there's always people on the bottom who are suffering and who are fighting back. And so rather than saying, Gregory's going to save the world and I've got all the ideas, I'm now kind of tuning into what other people have done historically and locally and what they've done in my community for a long time. So rather than like getting in the front of the Black Lives Matter march with a sign saying Black Lives Matter and here's the anarchist pastor take on it, I kind of get in the back of the line and say, wow, let me learn from all of these people who actually experience oppression and suffering in a far more drastic way than I ever do. Um, and they have so much more to teach me about how to combat it or how to fight it because they're the ones who experience it in such like a brunt force type way. I love it. I have the um, leader of the Black Lives Matter chapter in New York on my podcast, actually, in a few months. Oh, I love that. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting. Um, and I love what you're doing. I think that's brilliant. I think that's one of the reasons that you moved to Palo Alto, because you thought it was a really progressive place, right? And um, yeah. can give a little bit of background on the situation to a lot of the people who are tuned into the show and they don't really know about your work. So you moved to Palo Alto and... You joined a church, and then you basically started um, preaching about the homelessness situation and social reform and really, really progressive ideas. And you found that the city of Palo Alto started giving you um, basically pushback eventually. Mm. Am I correct? Or Yeah, definitely. <laughs> the whole entire thing basically resulted in a series of private tweets, which kind of blew up because you had how many? Like 100 followers? It was like a private account, right? Yeah, I had a small small amount of followers that I would just rant to and they would rant back and it was like a big virtual hug that I would often get with my angry tweets from other angry ministers. Well, it was kind of like a personal account, right? I actually went through the dossier. There's a dossier by the town of Palo Alto, <laughs> yep. which, is, 
which is like 42 pages. And I went through each one of them. And the thing that I thought was hilarious was that like some of the photos that were submitted were like stapled upside down. Like somebody <laughs> does not know how to create a PDF document. And this is the city of Palo Alto. Palo Alto. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so I was going through this dossier. What I loved is that like whoever ratted you out for having all these tweets didn't do like the Palo Alto tech thing, which was like, hey, here's our like some screenshots and a PDF that I'm going to send you in the Slack channel. No, no, no. They went to Kinko's or whatever and they like printed out like 42 pages and dropped this off leaflet style at like houses. World War II style propaganda. Like the communist is in town. (laughs) So the city of Palo Alto, I guess your tweets didn't fit into their dinner conversations basically because you, you tweeted things about Beyonce, which I'll go into later, which is hilarious. You tweeted things like, you know, uh, I guess Ben Affleck has like a really huge back tattoo and it's real. Like it's a collection of tweets about you saying pop culture stuff, but also venting about life and work. Like there was a tweet that said something like, I don't know, something about a rock star canceling his show. like 30 minutes before the show and you were like yeah some, it was something like yeah I love my jobs did nobody ever <laughs> which is you know universal you know like we all love our jobs but even like sometimes it gets hard even if you're a rock star or whatever like it's just hard to show up sometimes in life it's mm. hard and you need a place to be able to safely vent about those things so I guess the city of Palo Alto really uh, lost their pearls on this one tweet that you posted which spoke um of Palo Alto, of quote-unquote, Palo Alto is an elitist shit den of hate. (laughs) (laughs) So that really got their panties in a bunch and led to, (laughs) it led them to turn their hatred upon you and run a pastor out of town. Mm. My question is, Palo Alto considers itself a progressive place. And according to Oxford, the word progressive means favoring social reform. What does the word progressive really mean these days when a progressive city like Palo Alto is not open to diversity and compassion and taking care of homeless and decides to run a pastor out of town. So this is exactly um, the critique that in like nerdy academic world, this is a, a kind of common critique, but it's not one that has necessarily bubbled down or trickled down. <laughs> um, and so the idea is that it's a critique of progressive as an idea. And so in the sense that like, you could come to a place like Palo Alto and you could claim that it's super progressive, but in reality, you couldn't exist here if you're a working class or even middle class. There's a lot of middle class people who are moving out because they can't afford a $5 million home. Um, and so this idea that society is progressing forward, except if you're a person of color or if you're working class or if you're poor or if you don't have a tech job, if you just kind of have a regular teaching or community job, you can't live here. And so therefore you don't get to experience the progress that's made, which is true and reflective of our entire society. So if, if you go to Mexico, Uh, they don't live like we live. And that's not because they just woke up and are poor and something. That's because of the way the world is structured and the way the world systems work and the way that the United States relates to uh, Mexico. And so in many ways, if you look around the United States, it looks like we've progressed so far because we live in this comfort and abundance and all this. But in reality, that comfort and abundance is on the backs of other countries globally in the same way that in Palo Alto, the comfort that we live is on the backs of the people we've gentrified. So like East Palo Alto, is right next to Palo Alto and is traditionally like a black and brown neighborhood. But it's no longer that because it's being gentrified by Facebook and by Amazon and by all these like young techies who are swooping in, buying up the land and the property and making it way too expensive for everybody else to live. Um, And so progress is like, well, what is progress? Um, Is the fact that 90% of large fisheries in the ocean are gone or that, you know, forests, 95% plus of forests and fish and the oceans and grasslands and migratory songbirds and salmon and all these things, it's all collapsing, but supposedly we're progressing and getting better. Um, we're reaching the point where there's fires constantly burning around the Bay Area because of the climate is changing so rapidly because it's heating up. The soil and the land and the trees are all drying up and there's not enough water and everything's burning up. It's hard to see progress done when in reality our society, our world, our, our cultures are collapsing because of things like climate change. And so when I moved to Palo Alto, I was expecting progressive, but then I kind of learned what progressive means. And 
in places like Palo Alto and the Bay, it really just means that you have a couple nice things, a couple uh, more mindful and compassionate ways of thinking about the world. But you aren't necessarily doing it with a good systemic structure. So like in Palo Alto, it's all about ecology and, and being green. But again, we might have tons of bike paths in Palo Alto. But if you're black, brown, poor, working class, you can never use those bike paths. Um, so if progress isn't for all of us, if progress isn't for every human being, if progress isn't for every plant, tree, and salmon as well, then I don't really think it's progress. If it's progress for the tippy top and they get to live fat and pretty in these like liberal utopias of theirs, but the rest of us are suffering, um, to me it's not very progressive. Right, and um, there were a few articles I was reading that talked about the workers, the maintenance workers who work at these companies, you know, the people who work operating the food courts, the people who are doing the babysitting, the maintenance people, they're forced to commute on these roads about 50 miles out now because no one can afford to live in Palo Alto. But what I find really interesting is that San Francisco has not taken care of the roads. And that's another issue that no one speaks of, like, where's the tax money going? Because now that you're forcing people to live further out, you're doing nothing to improve the infrastructure. They, and they up the tolls. So now it's like a seven dollar mm -hmm. toll to get across the bridge. Seven dollars to get across the bridge. If so, you drive to oh work, you're screwed. Yeah, if you drive to work and you're making minimum wage, like fifteen dollars an hour, and you're paying for gas, and then you're paying a fourteen dollar toll, it's that's a huge toll. Mm -hmm. You know, there should be different tolls, like different taxes for different incomes. Mm -hmm. And um, and there are also 77 bridges that are in need of repair. And, you know, what part do tech companies have in all of this? Like, you speak a lot about post-colonization. There has to be a word for the colonizing of tech companies, right? It's oh, yeah. almost like, yeah. I mean, we have techno-rapture, right? Which is all the <laughs> rich people like Elon Musk and everybody else and Bezos. They're all like building rockets so they can get off this planet as soon as the wildfires get to be too bad and the water runs out. And, um, and but, Elon like, Musk, I'm pretty sure, calls his trip Colonize Mars. Colonization right. was the destruction of the entire ecosystem, biosphere, people, cultures. It destroyed and created genocide of the Native Americans. It created the African slave trade. It created all these problems. And he's going to use that word as if it's just a pretty word and say, let's colonize Mars. To me, he's explicitly saying, I know what I am. I know what I do. And this is what we rich kings and queens have done our whole lives is we've we run the world and we colonize things. We destroy other cultures. We tell them ours is right. And uh, we benefit through financial gain. You know what? I'm Googling this fact right now. And from my quick Google searches, I guess he just, yeah, whenever he speaks about SpaceX, his program, he uses the word colonization. <laughs> it's scary. <gasps> Isn't it if scary? You, like, and it's scary for me as a white middle class person who's been to school and who's read some books on it. But the people who experience like generational trauma or the like Native Americans who are still having dogs sicked on them when they're standing in front of pipelines saying, y'all, this is our sacred mound. You I... can't spill your damn oil on it. Like those people speak volumes to this sort of language. And oh my God, that's scary. I drove out to Standing Rock over winter time and I was 20 miles oh. out and it was negative 20 degrees. Then I was with my boyfriend and there were like guys with guns preventing mm. people from coming in. And we were like, wow. you know what? Because this was after the water tanks sprayed everybody, right? Like after the water tanks came in, I was like, oh, I have to go get a podcast here. Like that's it. I've got <laughs> yeah. a podcast planned. I'm going in. <laughs> and um, and I had to turn around because it was just too dangerous. Well, yeah. So that's me too. It's like I want to be on the front lines because I know I should be, but it's absolutely terrifying. And that's the place where people who are trans, of color, Muslim, I mean, every time a trans person leaves their house, they get assaulted with the way people stare at them. And I mean that in the Bay Area. I was at a march recently with a trans friend, and everywhere we went, I thought they were looking at us as like a cute couple, but I started to realize, no, they're staring at her. Um, and that's in the Bay, this progressive bubble, you know. And so to be trans is to literally be an assault on the system, and you're constantly in this place of assault from the system, but your whole life and existence is like rebellion and resistance. And I just, as much as I want to be on the front lines, my God, when I was just hanging out with her, it was like, this is so hard to experience. I don't know how people survive. Mm -hmm. It is. It's... Um... 
Oh, gosh. But you know what? I think it's up to everyone to keep on fighting these fights. And this is the reason why you're doing your work while we're doing this podcast. Mm. And, you know, I think just looking back at the time where I grew up, I'm 39. I think in a weird way, society has evolved because I'm seeing these little kids coming out and I'm seeing everybody have funky hair colors and the Me Too movement has started and there's trans rights and gay marriage. And I was like, you know, as much as I feel like I'm being defeated, I guess it's small progress. Like it's, you know, maybe it's two steps forward, one step back, but we mm. have to keep on raising our voice about it. Mm, that's for sure. Right. And um, I guess I want to talk a little bit more about the housing situation in San Francisco. And there are companies that are making so much money and displacing people, forcing them to be homeless because they can't afford to live there. And, um, the companies are not really contributing anything to the city. They're very parasitic. Mm. So, um, you know, what social obligation, right? This is talk, Let's talk about, like, consciousness and just, like, what would Jesus do, right? Mm. Obviously, mm. Jesus would not set up, like, Google and just, you know. <laughs> but he might set up something like Oscar and heal people. Like, who knows? I don't know. <laughs> like, a walk-in clinic, whatever that might be, right? But, like, what obligation do companies have, to society and to local communities where they come in and they make money. Yeah, so this is where my critique is more systemic. And so my old way of thinking about it was that these companies should just give us more taxes and volunteer on their side hours and that I was going to be one of those volunteer coordinators and try to get those kind of folks um, involved. But then what I realized is that unless we're changing the system and society, the way it's structured, that all we're doing is kind of putting a bandaid on the problems. And I think that this is why Jesus gets nailed to a cross is because he's saying it's the system. That's the problem. We don't just need to hang out with the Samaritan or the woman or the poor person. We need to question why is the system creating poverty when it's also creating multi, multi billionaires, um, and so like in Palo Alto alone, right behind the church, literally directly behind it, Larry Page lives. He makes upwards of $24 billion a year. Um, Steve Jobs used to live here, but now Tim Cook lives here. Uh, these people, Palantir is here. All of these multi-billion dollar companies with CEOs at the top making billions of dollars while there are more and more homeless people, more gentrified people, more black and brown bodies who can't exist in these spaces. Um, and so when you do that sort of systemic critique, what you realize is that there's more than enough money. There's more than enough food. There's more than enough clean water. There's more than enough housing. The problem is distribution. It's who's got it all. Is why would some person be able to make billions of dollars or even multi-millions of dollars when in reality, it's those of us who slave away at their offices and at their companies making $15 an hour um, creating their products or selling their products that are being left out to dry. Um, and so to me, homelessness is actually a problem that is created by capitalism itself and not by necessarily greedy tech people. The greedy tech people are just being good capitalists. Uh, they aren't paying their employees what they should. They're centralizing the wealth at the top. They're keeping out women from the boardrooms. I mean, it's a trendy thing right now to have women in your boardroom. Women in your boardroom should not be trendy. That's just logic. That's reality. That's like these places claim to be progressive because they're now letting uh, women in the board. Well, I bet there aren't people of color. And the people of color who I do know who've worked for places like Adobe, the moment they speak up and say, this is weird that we have a race training by a white guy and not a black person. It's also weird that I'm the only black person in the room and I can speak for this, that they get fired, that they get off, they get chopped. And that's what creates homelessness is that someone like that has been working in this company and simply speaks up and says racial diversity should be taught by someone who's uh, a person of color and experiences this. They get cut from their job. They can't get in another job now, and now they're joining the ranks of the homeless, while the people at the top, these white rich men, are making gobs and gobs and gobs of money, you know, multiple thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars in just a couple minutes. There's no possible way that someone could work hard enough to make thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars in like five minutes. Jeff Bezos makes, what, 24,000 plus every couple minutes? Like, that's Oh, no, no, it's 240,000. 240,000. Yes. What? Like, there's no way. And so the same amount of time it takes for a worker in Amazon to pack a package and ship it out in like a super quick time, he's made 
$240,000. They've made, you know, a box that you can ship out. I don't know. It's just illogical. And so to me, that sort of system is what creates homelessness. And so the only way we can respond to homelessness is, sure, of course, we need basic services. We need all of the county and federal and all the money that we're getting to respond to these problems. And we need the tax money, of course. But what we really need is for these people to begin to question, why are we existing in a system of domination and hierarchy? Why would we centralize wealth at the top? Why wouldn't we distribute all of this wealth so that all of us could live fat and pretty, so that all of us could experience the benefit of a Tesla, so that all of us could live in these beautiful spaces as opposed to just some of us? I mean, society would be so better off if we distributed things differently. We would progress so much more. People wouldn't be living to work. They would be living to be creative. They would be living to express themselves with joy and creativity because their lives would not be defined by money because that's already taken care of. That's so true. And I think this also brings me to this other question that I have about AI, right? AI is being developed to do Mm. all this work, but who's programming AI to be diverse, to have Mm. feminine qualities, to have LGBT qualities, to have, Mm. you know, ethnic qualities, like all these things that actually make you human as opposed to, I don't know. I don't know what that mm-hmm. word is. I guess, I mean, it makes it sound like somebody who's not all those things is not human, but that's not the term that I'm trying to use. But, um, you know, who's programming this AI to have compassion, to really have a full understanding of the rich experience of being a human, mm. you mm. know, and how do we get, how do we get those voices in the room? That's a different podcast that I want to have. That part to me is scary, not having diversity when it comes to AI. Yeah, so there is a part of AI that's kind of cool where it's like, sure, let let the computers do all our crappy jobs and the rest of us again would rather than have to slave away at some job selling our labor to bag groceries or to scan groceries or to, you know, do something like that. We can let a machine do it. Um, But those people whose jobs have been displaced should be paid enough because the machine's doing their other job. So now there's all that excess money. It can be given to that person. And now that person doesn't have to live in this miserable conditions fighting simply to get some food on the plate for their kids by bagging groceries. The robots got it. So that person could go focus on some creative side project that's developing their humanity as opposed to just their ability to make money. Mm -hmm. And, you know, which is so interesting to me right which is about like being human and being humanity like I think everybody's talking about technology making the world a better place and making us more human like I think um my friend Masha who's an investor she's a female investor she was just on the show she had a quote that said um we're making technology more human and we're making humans more robotic Mm, that's so good it's so good and like Is technology really making the world a better place or is it just like a myth that all these people, all these capitalists are kind of just like repeating to themselves to justify their existence? 200 percent. I've underlined that and that's tweetable. That's exactly what it is, because like I just said, it can be used in a really cool way. And like you said, if it was this culturally diverse, multi-ethnic, bio-racial, badass sort of AI, okay, if they're taking all of our crappy minimum wage jobs so that the rest of us can go do actual fun, creative jobs like the creative and capitalist class gets to, great. But in reality, that's not what's happening. Elon Musk is trying to colonize another planet. <laughs> Who's going to be doing all the jobs there? I mean, like, oh, there's going to be so much work cleaning out rubble. There's gonna be, well, yeah. You know, there's going to be Starbucks there. Anyway. And they'll probably they'll probably ship out some sort of lower income migrant black community to go clean up their rubble. But it'll be, hey, we sent them to space, so we're good guys. In reality, it's no. It's gonna be the prison system. Listen, this is what's wow. gonna happen. The prisoners are gonna get like enlightened. <laughs> That's what they're gonna market it as, right? Yeah. Like giving them new jobs. The people fighting the fires right now are prisoners, and they're making $2 a, $2 an hour. I saw that. Uh, and so there's all these – I mean, I was watching Democracy Now!, a progressive news source, and they were interviewing Greenpeace activists who were saying how excited and thankful – maybe they weren't Greenpeace, but they were some sort of green advocacy group – and how excited and thankful they were that the first responders were so brave and strong and how wonderful – The reaction was to all these fights. In reality, it's not. It's prisoners. I mean, yeah, there's a lot of first-line, front-line, wonderful people who are sacrificing their lives. But there are also a lot of people who who are being paid $2 to put their lives in the most dangerous place ever. 
Oh my God. Yeah. It's, you know, there's a lot of morality coming out too. There was a huge article today, actually, and that Google um, employees led a revolt. I don't know if you had a chance mm. to see it, but I guess they found out they were working on a project called Grasshopper, which mm. was creating a search engine for China. Mm, and they had yeah, they the, had no mm-hmm. idea what they were building so they found out that what they were working on and they were like hey this goes against like the google code of not building evil things and all this other <laughs> stuff and like i don't even know what i'm building there's so many people building it i think there were like 100 people on the project and um and the people who led the drone revolt, who were like, hey, we don't want to work on a military drone project identifying vehicles, started this other petition, which led people to voice their ethics concern. And I think ethics is such a strong word that we need to use in life. I think everybody's just forgetting about ethics in a weird way. Well, that's and that's a good idea about tech is that the, there were some Salesforce employees who recently tried, I don't know how rebellious it was, but they tried to speak up and say, we as Salesforce employees don't want to be working for a company that's literally the platform for ICE, for the immigration uh, organization who uses the Salesforce platform software. So it's all of these platforms, um, software companies, Palantir, the big one here, is all for data mining. It was like a huge one when it was an election series because they could uh, data mine the hell out of, of, of the Internet and send you all of the information of tons of people. Um, and so all of these tech companies, they do have some good sides, but they also are being used in these like disgusting, vile ways. When we begin to develop a critique of capitalism, it's mm-hmm. not necessarily on the shoulders of those of us who have to sell our labor to these massive corporations to survive. Mm-hmm. And like a good example would be like a black mother who has to get in her clunky car that has terrible gas mileage that's not fog inspected that pumps out tons of carbon into the air. And she has to drive her three kids to school, which is far away. Then she has to drive to uh, work. And there's all of this carbon footprint. So the environmentalist in Palo Alto is going to blame her and tell her how bad she is, as opposed to blaming the economic system that's literally based on the infinite extraction of resources on a finite planet, where that's just illogical. You can't do that. Um, and so it's like Rex Tillerson is spilling millions of gallons of oil into the to the oceans, or these, like you're talking about Standing Rock, these companies are making billions of dollars by stealing people's land, pumping oil through it, profiting off of it. Those people, we need to look upward. We need to blame the people who sit in boardrooms and make decisions saying, you know what, we actually are going to resource our minerals from Indonesia because it's so much cheaper and there's no environmental restrictions and there's no uh, worker restrictions. So to me, it's like it's the Rex Tillerson's, the Donald Trump's, the Tim Cook's of the world that should feel guilty as hell and not be able to sleep. And not necessarily those of us at the bottom who, like, if we don't get in our car and drive our kids to school, no matter how big our carbon footprint is, they're not going to have an education and not be able to exist in society. Or if you can't sell your labor to one of these larger companies, uh, you're not going to be able to exist. And me, myself, right now, I don't work at a church and I want a new job and I can sell my labor to a nonprofit. But who are these nonprofits funded by? But Salesforce and all these other people. And so there's no like winning when you're on the bottom. When you're on the bottom, you're just kind of screwed. And by the bottom, there's a there's a big there's a big gap. I mean, middle class is working class in this larger scale of how much billions are at the top. Um, and so it's not really us who should take the blame if we take a longer shower, but it's the assholes who are like Nestle who bottle water and sell it to poor countries that should be taking the blame. Yeah, you know, and I think it's getting harder and harder to just kind of like have a voice. And I get penalized because the moment that you speak out, right, like, I've created this podcast to kind of amplify all the good positive frequencies in the world and connect all the people. And I feel like everything functions in harmonies, right? Like Mm -hmm. it's a chord. Palo Alto has a frequency, right? And then you, you went up maybe like an octave higher. You were like, (laughs) I'm going to vibrate at a higher frequency and try to get you to my level. But people were still stuck in kind of like a low vibration. And they were like, whoa, we're going to reject this one because it's making us uncomfortable. You Mm. were like the high vibration that is forcing them to evolve and they're just not ready yet. So Mm. they were like, eject. (laughs) Right. But like, how do we get everybody to just vibrate higher? How do we get people to come together? Like you said, screw this. You know, like I'm having a hard time getting people to meet up and talk about things and solve problems. What are some things that you want to organize? Like if you had an infinite number of resources, 
what would you like to do? I just came up with that question. <laughs> I, I would do what the Zapatistas do or what the Rojava revolution is doing right now, where they have created autonomous zones and they create their own societies that are based on egalitarian and uh, female-led often or not led at all, but collectively run, where the whole group is participating. Um, and they have their own education system and their own way of kind of raising and rearing people. But it's this it's a way of doing society that's not utopia. It's by no means perfect. Um, but it's a much slower process where everyone is involved, where everyone is valued, where the land base is understood as a, an integral part of life and of society. Um, but it's very much so participatory, where, where we don't have a political class, but where everyone is participating in the decisions that are made for their own lives. Um, and and, and it, training people in the way of participation and collective action is something that I try to do before we can get to that space. So rather than saying, let's vote better, um, I want to say, let's be politically active together. Uh, so rather than saying somebody else, it's somebody else's responsibility to do it, I want to say, no, it's our responsibility. And we've gotten lazy because the way our system is structured is that we can just give all the responsibility to some other person. But what we find is that doing that has done terrible things for society and culture and us. Um, and even under Donald Trump's presidency, it's interesting because the white middle class is beginning to recognize, oh, my goodness, now it's coming up to us. Now it's knocking on our door, the way in which our representative is not doing what we've asked. Um, in any way, shape, or form. And so they're starting to rebel and react because they're feeling it. But that's the thing that black and brown communities, since they were slaves, since Jim Crow, since the prison industrial complex, since redlining, since all of these, the war on drugs, since, you know, all of these terrible things, they've, they're just used to that sort of uh, excommunication, I guess. Mm -hmm. People are just so divided about their opinions. And like, how the hell can we bring anyone together to actually like solve things? Well, so I think this is a narrative we have to actually deconstruct because I don't think the world, I mean, the world is divided. The country is divided. But in reality, the Democrats and Republicans are insanely similar um, in the sense that they both are just different wings of capitalism. But capitalism is the logic of hierarchy, of domination, of imperialism, of resource extraction on a finite planet, these types of ideas. And so... Uh, if you just have one person who's like, well, you should be able to get an abortion, and the other person's like, well, no, you shouldn't. Well, in reality, it's like they're just arguing about this side issue, but the same system of domination and hierarchy and the logics that that produces, the logic that competition is better than cooperation is illogical. But in the capitalist system, that's the only thing they've got going for them. Money rules politics in that system. And so you'll never hear a Democrat or Republican critique the system in which they're being funded by. I mean, the Democrats, the DNC literally just voted a couple days ago to take fossil fuel money. So they're going to run a platform of resistance to Donald Trump, of resistance to ecological res uh, problems, of, of, of supporting climate uh, change as an idea and trying to put in policies that resist it when they're being funded by the very industry that they're supposedly fighting against. And so to me, the division is not, it's a false division that the media has created, that Donald Trump has created, saying that Democrats and Republicans are just so far apart. Um, both of Democrats and Republicans support the occupation of Palestine. There's very few that speak out against it. I think the one socialist who ran on a Democratic ticket is, is maybe she's an independent, I don't know, but she might speak out of that. But Bernie doesn't. Bernie doesn't speak out about, about that at all. Um, and so there's like his critique of Wall Street is one thing, but then when we look at where uh, what ends up happening, he 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 succeed he he gives in and lets the Wall Street candidate end up winning without batting an eye, and so all of this massive movement is just kind of thrown under the bus. Um, so it's like neoliberalism is not actually uh, dividing us. With, that's kind of what's unifying this false narrative of division. Um, and so that when some person comes in and sp speaks a little bit nicer about abortion or about climate change or something, then everyone's like, oh, yeah, yeah, we have to be on that side. But in reality, kind of behind the scenes, it, it's, it's not Things aren't really that different. And so this is where I think the political education that we as pastors and other people can provide is to say that that's one basic system and that there are different systems and that there have been different systems. And socialism, like Lenin's socialism, is one very specific type of hierarchical socialism. And that there have been people like anarchists who've been speaking up and saying since day one. I mean, Marx was not the first socialist. Marx was in, in an argument with other people about this idea of socialism. And so there was people like Bakunin when Marx was writing, 
who were saying, wait, that's not going to do it. We need to, that's going to create what happened, what Lenin and Stalin's of the world. We need to create these societies that aren't based on hierarchy, that aren't based on the logics of the state, but are based on cooperation and collective participation. And that to me would be a real division of ideas is like, the far left and the far right is a real division of ideas, <laughs> but not necessarily this like central, the centrist Republican Democrat. If we were just looking at Obama and looking backward, he dropped more drones on more people by immigrant uh, justice groups. He was called the uh, deporter in chief. Now, Donald Trump, again, has has made these problems much worse, but it's not that the Democratic candidate, this upstanding, wonderful, well-dressed, well-spoken person isn't actually the deporter-in-chief or the bomber-in-chief or the uh, economic destruction of black communities-in-chief, because he was. That's where we can, on the left, agree with the right, is we can say, I totally understand why you're mad at the system. I totally understand that you can see flaws in the Democratic candidates, and I can agree with you on those, but the, the lots of times those people aren't willing to see flaws in the right at all or the right's candidates, which is strange to me, um, like this perpetual defense of Donald Trump. It's like, give it give it up, y'all. He is a total flopping mess, and, and it has nothing to do with conservative politics, and it has everything to do with just him as a human being as just a sloppy mess, and allowing that to be is okay, and that you can still be a conservative and have conservative ideas about the economy or something. Um, but so like my dad and I, when I first became or wanted to be vegan, I would go to his house and go, you know, I can't eat any. He he always has like two meats on the dinner table. So like a red meat, poultry and then a side dish. <laughs> and so I was like, well, I can't eat anything you make because I'm now vegan. Um, and so we have this big argument and I just want him to be covered in patchouli and me to leave and, you know, sing Kumbaya or something. But he gets pissed and I get pissed. Well, a couple years go by and I realized, you know, the way into this conversation is not to say I can't eat any of that and you're abusing animals. It's to say, oh, my God, my dad lives in Alabama on a farm and he's probably eating meat that was raised by his neighbor. And so his neighbor probably knows that that was little Susie. Little Susie was raised to, until she was 12 and then killed. And so she lived a wonderful life on a farm with a nice guy. And my dad happens to be eating a locally produced piece of beef. And so now my veganism is kind of upset because it's like, well, wait, my critique was really of this larger farming industry, uh, which my dad doesn't have a critique of at all. Uh, but it's also trying to say, well, let's eat local and let's try to uh, support local farming. And in reality, my right wing nut job of a dad has been doing that his whole life in Alabama. <laughs> and now all of a sudden we can connect and I go, oh, that's what I mean, dad. You're already doing the local thing. You're doing the liberal thing and you don't even recognize it. <laughs> right. Yeah. I've been, I'm vegan too. I was vegetarian since I was 12. And, uh, yeah, showing up at family dinner tables still for like visits and I'm like 39 and they're like, oh, a hamburger? And I'm like, you guys, right. <laughs> same same answer since I was 12. Yeah. And uh, how's the cholesterol doing? Good, good. You guys want to explore a <laughs> vegan diet yet? No, no. You're going to take some Lipitor? Mm, great. <laughs> great. But yeah, it's just about trying to get people to be healthier and be happier and for everybody to just kind of be like patchouli wearing kumbaya. <laughs> because that's the only way we can like, oh, build our own ship so we can colonize Earth, you know, and not like kill each other. Mm. Because like this planet is just so full of pain. And that's what... Don't get me started on veganism. I will go there. But, uh, but you know, yeah, there, let me say that there is a lot more than just uh, the industrial farming side of it. So there could be a lot more said. But that's one of the ways that I was able to relate to my dad is my critique was always of industrial farming and then wanting people to shop local. Mm -hmm. I didn't get into the violence of it all, but that was enough. Um, and it worked. It was an easier way rather than him mocking me the whole time. It was kind of an easier way to, cause I could, st I could start to build him up and I could say, dad, I'm, you're doing some things really well and right. I'm not just critiquing you. I'm trying to make this world better. I'm not simply saying like, you're doing some things right. We can just keep doing more of those things as opposed to me just saying you're all wrong and everything's wrong. Right. And I think a lot of the pollution, too, that vegans kind of resort to talking about is um, it's coming from the beef industry, too. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. a lot of the pollution that we have actually is not coming from the cars. It's just methane emissions by farms and animals that, you know, have like mm -hmm. eight stomachs and um, and all that stuff. But um, I want to get back to talking about um, 
how you are pursuing a PhD in anthropology right now in social change at the California Institute of Integral Studies. That sounds fascinating. Um, <laughs> what would you like to do after you get out? So I, when I, here's the long story. When I first went to my master's program, Claremont School of Theology, I was studying interreligious studies. And at the end of the three-year degree, it's a working degree. So you're out into the field, into the churches, temples, mosques, into the streets, protesting with these people. Um, but you're also in the in the school studying. And kind of what everybody in the streets and in the school had to say was love your neighbor or some sort of like compassionate response to o- oppression and injustice. But it didn't ever really go much further than love. And to me, it's like really easy to be nice and loving to my barista and my grocery bagger and my next door neighbor. But it's extremely difficult to just use love as my response to global climate change and capitalism and Donald Trump. And so I started this degree in anthropology to get a, in political anthropology, to get a different perspective, a secular perspective. What are secular people saying about how we can change the world? And come to find out there is a lot more than just love and compassion. Um, but again, this degree was much like my, my master's where it's go into the streets and do your theory from the front lines. When, when a police officer shot flashbang grenades at me two weeks ago, the way in which my theory developed was very different than when I was sitting in my office just reading books about what it's like to be shot at by the police for doing nothing whatsoever but standing. Oh, that was um, another tweet that was like printed out in the dossier, how you hate the Palo Alto police, but that came from your interactions with them, which yes, leads me yeah, into so the exorcism. Like, you know. So I'm sorry, I'm, <laughs> I'm getting, I almost forgot about the exorcism. <laughs> My new favorite political uh, stunt is to do these various exorcisms. So wanting to do one to the Twitter building, but most recently I did one to the police line at uh, the Berkeley, when Berkeley protests, when we were trying to protest the, the fascists and the Nazis who came in to, for, to recruit ranks the Sunday before or Saturday, Sunday before Heather Heyer um, passed away. Uh, at the Unite the Right rally the year before. And we were we were standing there trying to chant, trying to get to the group, and the police had this massive barrier and wouldn't let us. And so I show up with my full religious drag. They said that you can't wear masks, which is a big anti-fascist black bloc tactic so that we can't get doxxed by uh, the right wings. Can you explain what doxxed is to the listeners that don't know what that is? So the exact thing that happened to me by the liberal, progressive, rich, white, Palo Altans, where they go to my Twitter, they find all these things that could possibly get me fired, and then they send it to the council, and then it get, does get me fired. Um, but doxing does it even more, where they find the person's name, address, and people will call them and berate them, give them death threats, um, try to expose them to their employer and say that they're terrible people. And so it essentially can get you killed. If you're trans, if you're migrant, you're going to get killed. It's If you're me and you're just a dorky white guy, you're going to lose your job. You're going to get yelled at. You're going to get weird death threats in your email, but you aren't going to actually get killed like a trans person. And so uh, it's scary to be doxxed. And so the purpose of wearing a mask is to say, one, you don't know. We aren't individuals. We are collective groups fighting for uh, justice and liberation. We aren't just individuals. Uh, but we also don't want to be doxxed. We don't want to be found so that they can expose us and attack us. And so we try to cover our faces. Um, and so the police, though, they made it illegal that two days before they made this announcement that said you can't wear a mask without being um, arrested. Uh, they did have some stipulations, and one of them was a religious clause. So if you're a religious, like a Muslim person veiling, you could wear your veil. And so being an interreligious person myself, I wore wore my collar, a bunch of prayer beads, and I wore a veil around my head and I walked right into the area where you aren't supposed to wear any sort of mask. And I tried to lead an exorcism of the police uh, in that moment, praying certain prayers over them and doing whatnot, uh, kind of doing a kind of guerrilla theater. So like when Jesus is walking into uh, the city right before he's going to be killed on Palm Sunday, all of these people are lining the streets, all of these like homeless has been washed up lepers are waving around palm branches, screaming, Hosanna, Hosanna. This is the king. Like, we're so happy Jesus is our king. Jesus is riding on a donkey. I mean, the most lowly, backward animal in, in the town. And on that same day Jesus was doing that, Caesar was having a war parade, the same sort of pr- war parade that just got shut down by the Pentagon that Trump wants, where Rather than palm branches, he's on a war horse, and they have massive banners and flags. And so Jesus is attempting to do a guerrilla theater. He's mocking Caesar. 
He's saying Caesar's power and authority is invalid and that this new way of being, which is humble and rides on a donkey and has homeless lepers are waving palm branches, this is the way of truth, justice, and beauty. And so to me, I was trying to mimic what Jesus was doing with his guerrilla theater by really just playfully exposing the fact that the authorities are literally defending the fascists, that they're blocking anti-fascists from even speaking up in the face of people who are literal Nazis. Um, and so it's then the question of like, well, whose side are the police on? Um, and while we were doing this, ex or I was doing this exorcism, saying certain prayers, trying to get their attention, trying to draw a mockery of the whole situation, um, they started shooting uh, flashbang grenades at the crowd behind me for literally no reason. The next day, the police reported that we had lit off fireworks, and that's why they were shooting us. But again, I was there on the front lines doing an exorcism. There were no fireworks. And so they just started shooting out rubber bullets and flashbangs, and it disperses the crowd, and people are bleeding, and I can't breathe. Literally, I'm running through this cloud of smoke, and I, I had a cough for like a week later. It was, it was wild. Um, but so, yeah, the exorcism is kind of a, a guerrilla theater to say the powers and principalities, as, as Paul said in Ephesians, are illegitimate and that they've abused their power and that now they're literally siding with Nazis and that we need to do all that we can as religious people to not only put our bodies on the front line, but to literally put our prayers on the front line, too. I mean, thoughts and prayers was not only real, but it was it was it was there on the front lines. And so I'm all about thoughts and prayers. But as long as they're done in that sort of way and not just like tweeted about. I think you should have had a donkey. <laughs> Bring a donkey next time because that will, you know, because it's it's I don't think they get it. No. And I, I like this idea of a donkey. I like this idea of guerrilla theater. Um. Because to me, it's like they're not I'm not sure they're going to get it if I'm just yelling a normal protest chant. But if I can do whatever I can to get a photograph of me on the front lines as a preacher exercising these demons, hopefully other people will think it's funny, but also recognize the truth to, behind it um, and maybe join in. To me, it's like I want to get more creative. I want to queer the front lines of a protest with more glitter, more horns, more dancing. <laughs> well, it's about um, it's about making people stop through just curiosity right and making yes. them not afraid because yeah. i think this goes back to the love factor people this is what i talk about on my podcast a lot which is you can either live in fear or you can live in love and mm. everything in this world that happens that is disastrous is because people are living in fear mm. we're kind of participating too because we're kind of like oh my god we're afraid that all these awful things are going to take over mm. so like how mm. do how does everybody come together and drop their I don't. I guess archetypes, right? Like right, right. you're wearing you're wearing a costume of a, a pastor. They're wearing the costume of the police, mm -hmm, and then the mm -hmm. upright um the, the the upright the upright citizens brigade. <laughs> no, definitely not. <laughs> the unite the right rally is wearing the uniforms of like khaki pants and white shirts and tiki right. torches. Like everybody's wearing these deeply um, society embedded beliefs so how do you get everybody to kind of like shut their uniform and come together and go hey we're on a rock flying mm -hmm. through this empty universe and we have to just like make this a really great existence for everybody involved and the only way we do that is by helping each other and not by killing each other mm. I, one of my favorite activists and scholars is john holloway and he talks about how um, we have to scream at injustice and that people will tell us not to. They'll tell us to get more sleep and take your medicine and, and go work out and get the frustration out. But he says, don't do that. Scream like hell when you see injustice. When a police officer shoots an unarmed black teenager in the back when he's walking away, scream like hell. But don't just scream. Create. Your scream has to be a doing. You have to do something. And so, and I don't just mean create in the sense that you sign a petition or you create a protest, but create a space in which the world you want is, is real. Do something that's not dominated by money. Do something in your life that's just a free creative expression or join it and do it in a community. One of the things that I was trying to do with a church is to say, it is our role as a church to scream like hell at injustice, but we've got property, we've got this building, and we've got, you know, 50, 200 of us in this room every once in a while. 
let's create a space here right now where competition is not the name of the game, but cooperation is. Where women aren't marginalized and don't make as much men, but where they're leading in this space and men are taking a seat every once in a while. Where trans people are preaching because we believe trans people don't only matter, but they've got bathrooms here that are better for them and they've got the stage so that they can give us their gospel truth. Let's, in these churches, feed every single person like they did when the Spirit fell in Acts 2, where every person there, their needs were met. So that people can look around and go, damn, when we see a spire or a church building and we see that symbol, we think that's a space where they're literally creating heaven on earth, where they're embodying the queendom, kingdom, queerdom of God on earth, where they're literally saying, in the shell of this scary and dark world, we are creating a beautiful, bright, vibrant alternative. And so, yes, we're screaming at police violence and climate change and capitalism and homelessness and drug addiction and the war against it. We are screaming at all of these things against immigration, against Donald Trump, against all of these things. But in our little spaces, in our churches, we're creating sanctuaries where all people matter, where diversity is upheld as the thing that unifies us, where all people are fed and clothed. And the purpose we're screaming is so that we can change it. And this is exactly what we hope to see if the change were to actually come. I love that. I think you have a quote that said, any church that's not explicitly anti-capitalist isn't a church. It's a social club. Hmm. Yeah. And I love that. You know, I was reading an article that said, um, capitalism does not create cool things. People in their great minds create great things. The capitalist system structures this creativity around endless profit for a select number and not for those who produce the products. I got to look up. Yes, I got to look up this article because I was doing research on you and I pulled this out. And uh, it might have been like from a Baptist um, publication, which was beautiful. So it commodifies every resource, water, land, air, and spoils it to the limit. The capitalist system floats on merciless competition and always works at the expense of someone else. The poor are getting poorer, the rich are getting richer, and the climate is collapsing. That is not success. It's a possible extinction of humanity. And what I took away from that as a creative person, right, is that we are the commodity. Humans are the commodity, right? We are data. We are the minds that create without us giving away our energy, right? Because right now we trade our energy. I go into a company and I give somebody my energy for the day and then they take it as opposed to me putting that energy into myself and creating Mm -hmm. capital for myself, right? I barter my energy. And in the end, it's up to creatives. You know, how do do we build this new society that we want to build? I think that's my next move is how do we create an infrastructure for people who are doing this? Because there is mass amounts of people who are doing this Um, All around, even in San Francisco, I find out about new people, new creatives, new artists, new people who are living in warehouses and creating weird, cool subculture. And if these people had some sort of infrastructure, I don't even know what I mean by that yet, but some sort of network that's connecting them, that's, that's, that's connecting them in a way that's providing resources or something. I don't know. But activist infrastructure to me would say, we are doing this. We just have to hold hands while we do it. You know, if we join together, we'll be so much stronger. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, when it comes to basic infrastructure, what do people need? They need food, shelter, healthcare. Right, right. So how can we provide those sorts of things for those who are activists and artists? There's a, the Berkeley Animal Rights Center is absolutely brilliant. They have people, gobs of people who are literally moving there because they've been so inspired, not by their scream, they're screaming, you know, animal agriculture and all this stuff, but also they're doing, they're doing of these incredible animal saves and of creating this massive vegan culture in the in Berkeley, but they're housing their activists, they're feeding their activists, and they're all fundraising through other activists around the world. And so it's activists who are, who are, who are creating this infrastructure so that their massive movement can grow. And oh my gosh, I'm telling you, in a couple years, the Bay will be vegan because their work is incredible. I think veganism is the new thing, you know? Like, I think people are finally waking up and they're going, wow, I'm putting dead things in my body. Like, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's gross and I don't feel good. And wow, I'm taking medication and pills. How do we create a society? Like, where do we go? Like, we can't just buy an island. But you know what? (laughs) Puerto Rico is doing really cool things right now, trying to come back. They're different. Detroit is doing really interesting things. I think people are looking for alternative ways to live because they're realizing that capitalism is leading to like, it's leading to really empty lives. Mm, Yeah. Right. And um, so I've got two more questions for you. So um, 
So the Palo Alto vice mayor, Eric Filseth, called your tweets vile, and he said he would think twice Mm -hmm. before sending children to an event at the church. So children are not learning compassion, alternate views, and rebellion, right? Rebellion Mm -hmm. is so important for children. Where do they find these things? Yeah, I mean, I I, I always think about this in a conservative mindset, which is not mine, but I can jump into that mindset for a sec. Technically, in a very warped understanding, but again, simplistic, the foundation of the United States is in rebellion to the queen and to her monarchy. And the whole concept of like religious freedom and religious liberty is in rebellion to state-organized religion, which is what the monarchy and the Anglican Church was doing. And so to me, the foundation of the United States democracy, uh, beyond colonialism, genocide, African slave trade, in some way was a rebellion against the overlord. When people are dumping tea bags into the sea, having a Boston direct action tea party, they aren't peacefully walking around uh, saying like niceties to each other. They're rebelling. And so to me, the very system that this vice mayor supposedly stands for is based on rebellion. We have to train our kids to say, if injustice exists, we say no. And what's funny is in Sunday school, every Sunday school lesson I taught was a Bible verse or a story and a combination of modern day injustice is how can we read this old story and how can we say, holy crap, things are still going on and we can learn to respond from those stories. But then the other thing is this guy is so far removed from anything we were actually doing at the church. He didn't know that I wasn't really the youth pastor. (laughs) I taught, I taught Sunday school on Sundays, but my job wasn't even that. It was to go create an interfaith community organization where we did social justice projects and talked about our multiple religious belonging. And so I was working with, with young adults, with 40, 50-year-olds, with Jane Sikhs and Baha'is, not with a bunch of kids telling them to say Palo Alto is an elitist shit then of hate. And all the people in the multi-faith organizing mosaic community knew exactly what I thought about Palo Alto and knew the language I used, and they were paying my salary. So the people who were paying my salary in that small community supported me. But it was this this larger community figure, the city figure, who was so far removed and so clueless to the wonderful work being done at the church that he says this sly remark trying to make himself sound like he's some moral upright citizen when he's not. He's literally the person, he's the face of the very city that I'm critiquing, the fake liberalism, the fake progressivism, uh, this notion that we can create a green utopia of Palo Alto, but if you're black and brown, you can't exist here. If you're working class, you can't exist here. So to me, it's like, I don't want to send my kids, if I ever have kids, to anyone like that, to someone who would uphold and work for a system that abuses and, and, and gentrifies the poor, that, that says that it's moral and upright, when in reality, it's living on the backs of those in poverty. To me, the vice mayor is the one that we should be holding our kids and protecting our kids from, because he stands for a dominant culture system, the very system that's destroying the planet. Has he ever stopped by the church in your knowing? Not once. Wow. That's a big thing, too, about a lot of the city officials have never engaged our community. A lot of the problems that we are having with the city, they wouldn't even call us or talk to us. We would find out that neighbors were complaining about things that we had done with noise issues or something. But we would find out after like 70 complaints after multiple years, and they would go, oh, by the way, we've had these complaints. Well, if you told us when it came in, we could have responded with cookies to the neighbor saying, we're sorry, and we love you, and you know, help us come knock on our door if we get too loud again. But there was such a non-response with the city and the church that it almost created the problem itself. It, it, it deteriorated our relationship with our neighbors because the city was trying to be this in-between person, but they weren't really doing anything but kind of holding on to information and then dumping it on us at the last second. That's amazing. You know, um, this reminds me of my friend Ben Berkowitz, who created a wonderful website. It's called cclickfix.com. And it's a go-between for local communities and then uh, legislation. It's like modern-day response system, which I think is just Mm. so progressive. And it's a great way to organize um, for every town to improve their local community on so many different levels, whether it's building a new playground or doing something. It's a great way for people to come together. Mm. Mm. Right? So, and I think those are the tools that we need to use to come together as a society and kind of build something. Yeah, that's an incredible example of like tech being used in in such a beautiful way. 
in such a beautiful way where we can all come together and, and like create positive things instead of just like, I guess, breaking things. <laughs> <laughs> right. So my last question for you is, what is your dream as an adult? So when we started, I said that my dream was to save the world with uh, Christianity before. But I think that, and I said this a little before too, now that I'm older and don't really think of Christianity in that kind of tight box anymore, I want to participate in the saving of the world that this larger community is doing. To not be the hero, to not be the face, to not necessarily be the anarchist pastor who represents something, but to be the just a part of these mass movements that are people who are suffering and oppressed and people who are responding, speaking up and creating this incredible uh, art and culture and music. Angela Davis, one of the um, Black Panthers, she lives in Oakland and she's a, you know, a prolific professor and author and speaker. And one of the things that she said most recently when she was speaking was that in slave times in this miserable, dark, terrifying conditions was birthed art and culture uh, that led to things like hip-hop and certain types of music and dance and culture. And so she's like, don't worry all the time. If we think we're in the deepest and darkest places, oppressed people, marginalized people always are creating, even in the scariest spaces, even when it's being their life is being sucked out of them, they're still able in this human ingenuity to create these beautiful things. And so to me, it's like, I wanna participate in circles like that, to join with trans people, with migrant communities who are suffering so bad, but at the same time, creating drag and creating underground New York uh, voguing communities or creating uh, different arts and cultural events that to me are, those are the things that are savory in life and that are zesty and probably gonna give me hope while I'm trying to do all this world change and stuff. Well, the next time you come to New York, we should do something. Oh, that would be awesome. That'd be awesome, right? But um, thank you so much for being on the show. I loved speaking with you, and this is so much fun. And I'm really looking forward to see what you go on to do, because um, I think you have a really great message. Well, thank you. This was awesome. This, this was a really good conversation. Yeah, this was really, really fun, right? I was like, wow, this is really great. Keep doing what you do. Thank you. And you too. This is a brilliant podcast. I'm excited. All right. Bye. Bye. Thanks for tuning into the show. I hope you enjoyed it. Please share on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Dream Nation Love. It's not Dream Nation Podcast. It's Dream Nation Love because I think my single mission in life is to teach people how to love a little bit more and together we can save the world. So it's Dream Nation Love. Share it with your friends. Have a great day and go out and make the world a better place.